4. Release Upon release from jail, after posting a hefty bail, I had a frantic sense of urgency to tie up loose ends. The timing of this event seemed nearly providential in hindsight, as I had just volunteered to coach my first youth sports team, and the first practice was that same night. I had not eagerly signed up for this coaching job, but as I waited in jail, the importance of this position swelled into a symbol of my responsibility, and thus the need to fix my behavior was paramount. Again, the vanity of my reputation needed restoration, and here was an opportunity. Suddenly, I wanted to be there for my kids more than anything, and my grumbling about volunteering turned into a must-have because I wanted to save face and give the appearance of a good father. Aside from my drinking, I did give all to my children, but now the shine was off that penny. Redemption was my real motive, not goodwill, for my children had never seen me stumble so publicly and spectacularly. Already knowing that my image had fallen dramatically from these events stabbed at me, as I thought of the children's disappointment and confusion. I felt as if I had taken a pin to a beloved balloon and popped it right in front of them. With only a few days left with a valid driver's license, I scrambled about the city taking care of errands, one of which included purchasing gear for the team I was to coach. Preparing for coaching became a focus because it was something positive amid the guilt of returning home where I had to face the music of my best friend, my wife, who I knew I had failed. I had entered into marriage half-heartedly, and because of that, I never elevated marriage to be the centerpiece of life where it belongs. We had not married within the church because we were both nuns, non-religious, and the idea of sacredness did not even occur to me. Yet, she always remained my best friend, and even in times of strife, we overcame our differences to come back together. We could not live apart without each other, because we share a real love that has foundation in our roots of friendship. But irresponsible drinking and the predictable unpredictability of the bad nights loomed over the marriage. This arrest and jailing was a breaking point. Even without an ultimatum from her, I had already declared a do-or-die demand against myself to stop drinking once and for all. My shame cut deep, and I resolved to change. This turning point in my life and our lives together put pressure on the marriage, for which I am forever guilty of and sorry for. Five years on, I am forever grateful for these events. Without this arrest and turning point, no progress could have been made. The experience of hitting bottom, which I thought had happened many times before, finally and truly happened. In prior fiascos, I must have only scraped the bottom because somehow I always forgave myself and returned to old behaviors. I typically scoffed at the cliche stories of people who quit drinking considering them hypocrites, especially those who became moralizing holy rollers and Bible beaters. Wouldn't I be like any other hypocrite after spending 20 years partying only to become a teetotaler? So I was careful to quiet my resolve to quit drinking 
without becoming a denier of others, always thinking of this Khalil Gibran line from the book called The Prophet when he was writing about hypocrites. And he quoted, Who comes early to the wedding feast and when overfed and tired goes his way, saying that all feasts are violations and all feasters lawbreakers? I needed to clean up my side of the street and let others worry about their side of the street. So I started coaching with fervor and attending AA meetings once again. I attended an evangelical church several times only to find the hand waving too foreign to my senses. I couldn't embrace the evangelical way even though I appreciated the people. I sought books on Eastern philosophy, but AA became my refuge for a time once again. And through AA, I had allowed God to exist, but without belief in any miracles. That was a bridge too far. But in accepting God, I at least had a handlebar for life, something to turn to in the struggle of relearning how to live. Doubt often crept in, challenging even that first step toward belief. I remember one of the first times that prayer proved to me that it worked. A friend asked me to go see a movie, Transformers 2, and since I had enjoyed the toy as a kid, I agreed, thinking that a night out would be fun. But the Transformers movie proved so horrible and so unnecessarily long that I felt like I would writhe out of my skin. The non-drinking and stress of trying to keep my depression under control came to a climax in the movie theater, spurred on by the absurdity of the movie. So bad was the movie that I said the Our Father about ten times just to outlast the cinematic torture and to avoid insulting my friend who loved the movie. I realize this is a ridiculous anecdote about the power of prayer, Watching a movie is not any kind of hardship, but in the moments when we discover things about ourselves, it's not always poetic. But in all seriousness, all Transformers movies should be destroyed. By then, I had learned to pray a simple way, and I use it to this day. When struggling, I was taught to ask God for strength and direction. Besides using rote, memorized prayer, I didn't know how to pray, and I largely still don't. But I do know how to ask for strength and direction. This always helps, and I can repeat it over and over if needed. Along with that, I can ask God, what is the next right action, and direct my energy toward that, whatever it may be. The third thing that I always return to is surrender to win. Surrender to win is a more powerful saying than I ever imagined, and despite the words sounding like giving up, the reality is that you almost never need to win. Most arguments and wants have a pointless foundation, and once I could see that I personally did not need to win all the time, I started to win in a different way. Surrendering removes desire and the need to be right. Surrendering lessens my ego's need to be special. The things worth surrendering for are, one, to allow my belief in God, 
two, to elevate my marriage above myself, and three, to worry less about my wants. There is a fourth idea I picked up regarding my struggle with belief in a higher power, and that was to start small in terms of a deity. I still remember after attending a meeting, standing outside of a Greek church, a man told me to make the streetlight my higher power. For now, he said, just give thanks to that streetlight for everything in your life. I laughed. Seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? He said, ask the streetlight for help every day when you get on your knees. Streetlight is greater than you are. Uh, okay. Stupid as that sounds, this is a place to start. And I am quite certain there is no organized religion in the world that would suggest this. But I know from myself and various other doubters that choosing something simple works, like a stapler or a plant or lawnmower or a streetlight. If you play this game and allow some object to be your higher power and really pray toward it for strength and direction, that streetlight will amaze you. Comical and ridiculous? Absolutely. But so are human beings, and sometimes laughing helps kickstart ideas. I recall praying, Streetlight, please help me today. Help me not drink. And to be nice to people, and not be the ass that I usually am. Keep me from acting like a moron. Help, help me to be a better father and husband and son and co-worker instead of my typical narcissistic self. And maybe I can try to swear less too. Thank you, Streetlight. Amen. If it sounds like I'm making light of establishing a higher power or finding God, I am not. Not all people can easily return to believing in God once they have fallen away or become agnostic or atheist. As I lost my faith during my late teenage years, like so many do, I lost the ability to believe or even find a reason to pray. Devoted religious people seem to be unwavering in their faith to the point that they cannot even fathom how someone has doubt. Therefore, those people always seemed unapproachable to the unfaithful like me. If anything, I felt this gulf between believers and non-believers pushed the doubters away rather than invited us to try because to have doubt felt like a weakness or a character flaw. Those with faith don't seem to struggle, or at least don't give the impression that they struggle. Although I know now that's not the case, not at all. Everyone struggles. Faith is usually portrayed as something you either have or you don't. I suspect doubt finds harbor in many minds and hearts, even among regular churchgoers. This explains why the streetlight God worked for me. It allowed for the possibility of faith. What I see happening with addicts and alcoholics is that the best path back to faith is through this wide gate at first, not the narrow gate. The streetlight God works because it doesn't make one go from preschool to graduate school in a single leap. The idea that someone who has completely rejected God or Christianity could jump back in immediately to religion to change and become like children that's not likely or even reasonable to expect. There's an education and processing that needs to happen, and the main reason this education and process needs to take place is because many of these people, like me, never learned why we were going to church in the first place. 
Sure, we learned why on the surface. To save our souls. To be forgiven our sins and bring us to everlasting life. Okay, but surely I cannot be alone in the experience that growing up Catholic, I learned all the things to say at the right time in the Mass and genuflected and crossed my head, mouth, and heart before the Gospel. But beyond the procedural, there was a lack of knowing why all the hubbub, why the vestments, why the stained glass. I spent years attending Wednesday night religion classes and hardly ever missed a Sunday. I was an altar boy for six years. I read my children's Bible with fascination, and I believed myself to be Catholic as part of my core person. Yet, while I darkened the door of a church often growing up, I was simultaneously learning a great deal of science and math as the years progressed. Moreover, the teaching of questioning everything became a prominent point in my education. To search and explore questions about the natural world was a moral good. Science was slowly undermining my faith, not by its own fault, because science is a search for truth, just like faith, but in a different domain. The problem was this. While I was learning to excel at school and question everything, the mass and church was a static part of my life that did not seem to accept questioning. In fact, I recall a major Easter moment when I asked an adult about the rock being rolled back at Jesus' tomb. Surely, I thought, if someone rolled the rock in front of the tomb to close it, then a person or persons could also have rolled the rock away from the tomb. Even if the tomb was sealed, metal tools existed, even way back then, that could have unsealed it just as easily. And the answer I heard back from a respected older person that I knew was, don't ask questions, just believe it. This comment caused an earthquake in me because as science seemed to question and correct itself, the faith appeared to not want any arguments. Science, even in its wild tangents throughout history, did seem to right the ship, given enough time, if the findings changed. The response of don't ask questions shook me because prior to that I had been coming to the faith like a child because I was a child. In school, having been in gifted programs, and I'm still not sure how I was selected into any of those programs, we read books critically. The same notions of reading seemed applicable to the weekly readings at church. But being rebuffed, I started to doubt and even secretly laugh at some of the stories. Along with the rock at the tomb, I found many other questions, and if they could not be discussed or took a long time for myself to explore, I didn't have time or interest enough for that pursuit. I was of a generation that got a light version of understanding faith, hence the major drift of unaffiliated people today. I was undercatechized, is one way to put it. With a lack of deep understanding, other things took its place. I had sports, I had school, and eventually parties filled that vacuum. And I began to observe political Christians behaving badly and conflate them all as one homogenous group of hypocrites. Obviously, I should have found a second opinion for my questions about the rock at the tomb. 
All of my doubting would have found the right answers if I had met the right mentor. But in a small town, there isn't a surplus of intellectuals running around quoting Augustine and Aquinas, ready to respond with the words needed to address such things. If John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger could have been cloned in the 1980s and 1990s and sent to each parish worldwide, I have no doubt myself and millions of other kids would have remained within the faith. To be fair, the person who told me not to ask questions wasn't equipped to answer my questions, and I should have asked others. Life became exceedingly busy in the teen years with sports and homework and jobs and girls and friends. Church faded into a Sunday event before NFL football. Wednesday night religion class became less relevant as I was so often tired from sports practice and slogging through math problems that I was checked out in religion class just there to punch my ticket and memorize Hail Holy Queen or some other prayer. A sense of the meritocracy in the world started to become clear to me. It was no longer by the sweat of your face you will get your bread. It was rather by the firing of your neurons you will get a job. A second major event occurred that altered my thoughts on what it meant to be Catholic. Sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, each week after church, there would be Bush for President flyers on our car's windshield after church. The pro-life movement took off, and without anyone telling me or saying so, it became, it became clear to me that to be Catholic meant to be Republican. Yet, in a farming community, the political choice and leanings of the early 80s trended toward the Democrats. In any case, the point here is not to call for support for either political party being right or wrong. My point here is that the church appeared to have aligned with one party, and I became confused as to the purpose of religion if elections were now invading this space carved out for God. In fact, I could not tell if the church was part of the Republican Party or if the Republican Party had joined the church. Conversations around politics became awkward as people had split somewhere down the middle since America was pretty much 50-50 on the two-party system then, just as it is today. Even then I saw no way that either party fulfilled what I thought the Catholic faith was all about, and today I know that neither party fulfills Catholic social teaching, as each side has different takes that do not exactly fit which is one of the interesting things about Catholic social teaching. These windshield flyers changed the way I saw church. Such lowly, earthly things as elections seemed irrelevant to the mass, but now various people in the local parish were stirring up the flock. I knew people that did a lot of charity work, but they were not pro-life. I knew pro-life people that volunteered and prayed often, living holy lives, but really judged other people. The divisions made no sense to me since I knew that not a soul inside that church on any given Sunday was without sin. Yet some people who seemed to be good, certainly holier than me, were dropping out of the pews. I didn't realize it at the time, but these events began to shape later thoughts on how I viewed the church, especially once I went to college, separated from the church, and later once the abuse scandal started seeping out. In hindsight, I can review my history and see my own psychological quirks and problems, but I can also see the starting blocks where the rise of the nuns, 
the new atheists, the unaffiliated religious, where they started running from. By the time I graduated high school, faith became a minor aspect in my life. Unless you count my faith in Dionysus, the god of liquor and partying. Still, a flicker of belief remained, and I wasn't ready to let faith go yet. Even though in the post-confirmation years, I just thought of myself as Catholic, despite living zero of the values. Prudence flew out the window. Temperance? Are you kidding me? Faith, hope, and charity? I would have thought you were referring to exotic dancers' names.